pastors and all believers are stewards. We are stewards of the gospel. We are stewards of the truths of God. Remember, this is still connected to let a man regard us in this manner. It is part of how Paul wants to be viewed, how he should be viewed. What is a steward? A steward is a manager of a household. I don't think we really have that kind of thing today. In those times, it would be a slave who was in charge of the whole household. Notice I said household, not house. He wasn't just a a handyman or a super who took care of the physical building. He would oversee the property, yes, but also the finances, the food, even the other slaves. His responsibilities would include things like adhering to a household budget set by the master, the owner of the house, allocating resources, giving food when it was appropriate, giving clothing and fabrics when it was appropriate. He would even be in charge of collecting debts. He would run the establishment. Obviously, especially for the wealthier people who had a lot of farmland, for example, this would need to be someone, a slave, that the head of the household could trust. When we talk about just controlling how much food goes out, this is because food was not as easy to come by as it was today. You didn't just go to the grocery store, stock up on two, three weeks worth of food because you have a refrigerator, you have a freezer, you have a large pantry or We have food that you don't even need to store cold anymore because they're vacuum sealed, they're in cans. They didn't have this back then. So it was important to really ration the food for all the slaves and even the kids of the head of the household to make sure they didn't run out, to keep things fresh, to make sure nobody was, was raiding the pantry and eating too much food. This guy would have a hard time with my youngest. He would even take care of the clothes, the fabrics. Again, they didn't just go to Macy's. They didn't just go to Amazon and buy a huge roll or ream or forgot what it's called, a fabric, right? This was uh, leather that would need to be cut and tanned and pounded by hand. They didn't have the abundance we have. Clothes were to last a while. They didn't wear a different T-shirt every other day or now in shelter in place every other week, right? Still. Con runs out, get a hole, you patch it or you throw it away. It's a couple bucks, five bucks, ten bucks. But not back then. Things had to be repaired. They had to be patched right away before the hole got bigger. And when it was time to throw them out, it was the steward's responsibility to make sure they would be replaced. And this is just, just some examples of small things to us that they would have to do, let alone all the other affairs of the house. This is someone who had to be trusted. You get the point. Big picture. The steward faithfully oversaw and took care of something that didn't belong to him. Took care of something that involved a lot of other somethings that he did not even own. He was entrusted with great responsibility as well as accountability. And he had authority. He's the guy giving out the food. That's authority. But only because it was delegated to him by someone higher up. All of these characteristics naturally and logically transfer over to the stewardship of the gospel, the mysteries of God. We are taking care of God's message and plan of salvation. We are entrusted with a great responsibility and a high accountability. Responsibility to do with the gospel as God sees fit, which is to preach it but also to live it. Accountability. 
from God and his other stewards that the gospel, again, be lived and preached down to the letter. We have authority, but only because we have been delegated this authority from God and chosen by him to be his ambassadors. You understand that as a pastor, my profession, or my ministry rather, is more than just a profession. It is a calling from God to be a steward of his mysteries. As such, I am expected to teach the mysteries, whether from the pulpit, in a class, on a Zoom call, or hopefully someday again over lunch or a cup of coffee. Although you as a Christian may not have as many opportunities to formally teach or disciple or preach, you have the same stewardship. All of us go where Christ sends us and are to deliver what God has given us. To not just preach the gospel, to preach all of it, to teach all of it to others in our church, but also to the world in every way. And this goes down to even how you feed yourself to listen to the right preachers, to read the right authors, to pick the right songs, all of it. Again, the principle that we saw under servant applies. As a steward, we are to take orders and execute them right away and without question. And as stewards, we do not deviate in any way from the Word of God. We see this all around us. We don't try to improve upon His words with our own wisdom so as to please others or make things more comfortable for us. Although both servant and steward mean different things and specify different privileges and roles for the Christian, they both carry the idea of a delegated authority and a special accountability. And this is a lot. This is a lot as we evaluate these roles in the context of our specific lives. It involves much more than we have time to cover this morning in terms of how this plays out in daily life. And even going beyond generalities to your specifics, I could not even address that. Because I don't know who your friends are, if they're believers or unbelievers or where they're at. They're atheists or agnostics or searching. I don't know what your job is like. I don't know what your boss is like. I don't know what your free time is like. I don't know what your browser history is like. But all of that, whatever comes to mind as you think about your stewardship and your service, general or specific, all of it, the literally millions upon millions, billions upon billions of ways the Christians can serve in this way world today are absolutely worth this. In one fell swoop, I can say they are absolutely trash if it isn't for our third absolute of a Christian's identity. The Christian, the minister, the pastor is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. We've seen that the minister is a servant, the Christian is a steward, and the Christian is trustworthy. Look at verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. It's required, he says. It's not optional. It's not just better if you're trustworthy. 
It's not, well, there's no one trustworthy, but you're more trustworthy, so that's okay. No. It only works if you are trustworthy. It is an absolute. It is a requirement. It is a non-negotiable. It is essential. This should be obvious. In the Greek, the word moreover or now in the NIV, it's a Greek word that draws an inference. In other words, because we are considered servants and more specifically stewards, it only makes sense that we do so faithfully. And this goes back to the actual steward, the house steward, the slave. Obviously, he has to be trustworthy. Otherwise, people go hungry towards the end of the month. Kids go cold. Fields get overgrown with weeds. The rich man becomes a poor man within days. We are to be trustworthy. It goes hand in hand with being a steward, a servant. And when you look at that word trustworthy, it has, of course, the nuances of being trustworthy, but also of being faithful. Faithful and trustworthy. Think about it. Whether you consider yourself rich or poor this morning, if you were to choose someone to put in charge of everything you own, including teaching your kids, which is what a steward would do, wouldn't you want that person to be trustworthy? I think you would skip Craigslist for this particular role, right? You'd ask around. You'd find someone you knew. And for Christians, we're actually talking about something more important than even your children. We're talking about the Word of God. We're talking about God's truth. I mean, how grieved and angry do you get when you hear the world surrendering to false teachers, to the sinful desires of the culture as they twist the truth or don't even teach the truth at all. This bothers you. It grieves you when a good friend of yours says, oh, I started going to a new church, what is it? And they tell you the name and your heart just sinks. We've all experienced that, especially here in the Bay Area. Right? It's because they're not being true to the text. They're not being faithful stewards. But are you? Are we? You see, when he says it is required to be trustworthy, what he is saying, and he has said this more clearly elsewhere, is what God desires is not eloquence. It's not brilliance. It's not cleverness. It's not personality. And it's definitely not popularity. It's faithfulness. And we don't just mean faithfulness and that you can always rely on Him, right? Yeah, He's, he's a faithful friend. He's, she's always there for us when we need her. No. We're talking about faithfulness to the Word of God and how that is interpreted either in teaching or testimony, your life. In fact, oftentimes, those who are the ones who are always there for you are the ones who are compromising the Word of God in the name of being a good friend, want to make them feel better, lift them up, boost their spirits. We need to be careful of that. Faithful is not a faithful friend. Faithful is faithful to God's Word, which makes you a faithful Christian friend, which, as I mentioned earlier, often makes the recipient see you as not a good friend because you're preaching, correcting, 
doing things the way God wants you to do them. To be faithful, you must understand the intense sacredness of the truth that God has committed to you. That is way more important than being a good friend or even another's happiness. And I think it's good to wrestle with the text. It's good to try to understand it. But we need to be very careful that we don't just flippantly say, nah, it's not for me as a Christian. Don't forget the holiness of God and the holiness of His Word. Back before I moved to Eastern Europe, I would lead summer teams there, always to the same country. And as the uh, missionary there got to know me and we became good friends, uh, there was this Americans' garage sale. So in that country, although they still didn't have a lot compared to us, the Americans, the missionaries, the expats, they would have a lot more stuff, especially baby stuff, uh, that the people in Eastern Europe wouldn't use, and we would freak out if we didn't have it for the safety of our, our kids. But the kids grow up, and then they sell their stuff, or they have different appliances or things they no longer need. And so every once in a while, they'd have an all-missionary and American garage sale. And so the missionary asked me and another friend of mine who had come on several teams uh, with me, and, and he had gotten to know her well, he said, could you go, I have a meeting, could you go represent me at this garage sale? And we already knew that, although, again, he didn't have a lot, he had more uh, than a lot of the other missionaries sent out from other churches and organizations. So we took his stuff, and the different missionaries would come, some that we knew, some were, were missionary doctors, things like that. And, you know, like a typical garage sale, and like a good American, they would haggle on the price. And so we would drop the price and sometimes just say, just take it, just take it. Our friend has all, everything he needs. And then we went back, and he said, well, how much did you make? Because you're not coming back with much. And we showed him, and he said, oh, that's not much. Didn't you see the, the prices we wanted for those things? And we said, yeah, but we know these missionaries don't have a lot, and so we wanted to drop the price for them because they don't have much. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, but what about me? See, we do that in stewardship, right? So often we are willing to bend the rules, twist the Scriptures, soften the gospel to appease others. Whether it's not wanting to make an unbeliever feel uncomfortable or wanting to make a believer feel good at the cost of holiness and rebuke, we compromise the Scriptures for others and all the while God is saying, what about me? What about me? What about my glory? What about my pleasure? Are you trustworthy? Are you faithful? Are you someone who even in the quiet moments of your own heart and the privacy of your own home are living out the truth of the gospel? The temptation here is that I'm talking about your testimony. You need to be a good testimony to the world. You're the only Bible most unbelievers will ever read. Then quote Scripture to them and give them a Bible. You know, it's sad. It's so sad that when we talk about Christian testimony, it's degenerated into thinking that our testimony is about how we behave, how we are viewed only when others are watching. That's not testimony. That's hypocrisy. Let me put it this way. People say being a good testimony is living righteously 
in the eyes of someone else. They're right, except that someone else is God and God alone. You don't turn on your holiness because non-Christians are watching. You don't turn on your holiness because you're hanging out with Christians. You don't turn on your holiness because you're here on a Sunday morning. Testimony is just living holiness at all times, and naturally your testimony will come out. See, when you're worried about what other people think and you think that's a testimony, that's when you're tempted to compromise. That's where the fear of man kicks in because you are, you are substituting testimony with fear of man, right? What is fear of man? Being concerned about what other people think. And if your testimony is just what other people think, that is fear of man. And somehow you are using this Christian word testimony, and yet it is a sin. We should live for God, and that's it. You want to wonder why when you, when you, you get to that moment and you can share the gospel, you, you pit around and you end up not doing it, and then you feel guilty for the next month, and you call people and you share your prayer requests at small group, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, and then finally you muster up the courage. You know why? Because you're living for that person, even maybe that person's salvation and not for Christ. When you live for Christ, you don't care what people think when it comes to the gospel and living out the truth. When we started, I spoke of how these verses apply specifically to pastors, leaders in the church, but also apply to all believers. And the reason that now that we've gone through this text, that may seem strange, and maybe your, your mind has just been trained or even your conscience just wants a default to know this is for pastors, this is for pastors, this is for pastors, it seems hard to swallow these days, is not because of growing distinction between leaders and non-leaders. Oh, I blame the media. I blame celebrity pastors. I blame megachurches. That's not it. Maybe a small part of it, but that's not it. I think the reason it can be hard to apply or even easy to disregard these verses if you're not a full-time minister is because of the growing distinction between Christians who serve and Christians who don't serve. That's not how it's supposed to work. That's like saying Christians who go to church and Christians who don't go to church. And even that example falls short because that's a reality in our society today too. It doesn't make sense. It's service and stewardship and trustworthiness and part and parcel of what a Christian is. It is the definition of what a Christian is. And we have too many people in America who are not serving they say they're Christians, but they're not serving. I don't mean on a Sunday morning. You've heard me say this before. Please, don't ever be tempted to think that's the limitations of what service is. I mean, most of you, for three months, going on four or five months now, have not served on a Sunday morning at all because you can't. Even those coming, we have no bulletins. We have no ushers. We have a guy spraying hand sanitizer on everyone's hands coming out, but there's nothing else. There's no refreshments. There, there's nothing. No new visitor bags. That's not all that service is. You know this. I don't need to go through the list. Service is just doing things for other people, ultimately because of Christ. But there are people who just, there are Christians who just aren't serving. And part of it is because they're not committed to a local church. We get visitors to our church all the time. Oh, we're visiting from Southern California. We're visiting from the East Coast. Oh, what church do they go to? 
I, I always assume that's a fair question because if you are on vacation and you took the time to take a Sunday out to find us to attend church, I just assume you go to church. Well, you know, I'm like, oh, is it strange? Obviously, aside from the personal issues I have, it should be strange that a pastor feels a little embarrassed that he just asked a visitor to his church what church he goes to. You know who are the boldest? This is probably doesn't relate to any of this. You know who are the boldest? I am not a Christian, but I am seeking. Tell me where to sit. I grew up in the church, but I walked away, been sleeping around, been doing this, but I am back. Christ has called me back. Can I sit in the front row? Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, where do you go to? Wow, there's, uh, there's four different churches. I got to jump around. Of course you can't serve. You have no one to serve. No one knows you. And so we got to serve. We got to be faithful. We are all ministers. We are all to be serving. On a side note, if you ever find yourself looking for another church, whether you leave this church or maybe you're joining us online and you're currently or will be in the process of finding another church, there is a lot in Scripture to tell you what to look for. One of them, direct context of this passage, is a pastor who is a servant of Christ. Not a servant of himself or even the felt needs of the congregation or the hunger for power among the elders. A man and a group of elders who faithfully explain and teach and live out the Word of God. An individual who is faithful in these things. That's what you should be looking for. Not just good music, not just good refreshments, not even... Just not even having an organized service, although that's important. You want to first go to what is most important. And I'm not just talking about teaching the Word. Oh, great sermons. Here's another tip. You want to know if these people, the, the, the faithfulness goes beyond just teaching the Word? This is very important. In fact, a friend of mine uh, who may be interviewing for some churches to be a pastor, asked me what to ask. And I basically said this. Do they love each other? Because they can be filled with all the knowledge in the world. They can have the most solid Bible teaching and preaching. But if they don't love each other, then they're not applying any of that truth because that's the first and foremost thing in terms of relationships that you can see. Do they love each other? This is especially important as this friend of mine had opportunity or will have opportunity to go to a larger structured church, multiple pastors, things, big things, trying to create movements all over the state, if not the country. Big church, very structured, very organized. Nothing wrong with that. I was discipled. I was trained at one of those. I used to work for one of those. And I said, here's what you ask. They have so many pastors. Find out a way without being too blatant if they hang out with each other outside of Sunday mornings. If they're friends beyond, ah, I'm wrestling with this passage, go down the hall, ask this pastor, have you studied this passage? What do you think? Do they have each other over for dinner? Do their kids play together? Do their wives hang out together? Wouldn't you think that's important? 
Well, you know, it doesn't seem, they just don't, they have different personalities, but man, can they preach. Finally, refreshing truth of God. Do they hang out together? Do they love one another? Are they friends? Faithful. Well, back to our main point. What is your identity? You say, well, I'm a Christian. Do you understand what that means and what that involves on a practical day-to-day level? Three absolutes of the Christian's identity. Servant, steward, trustworthy. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Let's pray.